Would you, um, would you open your Bibles, please, or the black Bibles around the room, to John chapter 1. John's Gospel chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Scriptures and where to find stuff, go to the very front of your Bible, to the table of contents, look for the New Testament, and then look for the book of John, and then go to John chapter 1. This is the very start of this Gospel. I want to read it for us this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, would you, would you open our eyes to see the truth of your Son? Would you open our eyes to rehearse the beauty and the joy and the light and the hope and the life that comes to us through you? Lord Jesus, as your people, as your church here this morning, we look to you we want to see you with more clarity than we've ever seen you. And I ask that for those of you, for, the, for those in the room who don't know you, Lord, that you would draw them into your family and make them forever our brothers and sisters and your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the big idea this morning. This is where I'm going, this is going to be implied a lot, but it's not going to be repeated a lot. This is just kind of the framework. The big idea of this message is the arrival of Jesus draws us to come back home to our Creator. Our Creator is the light, and He is the life, and He is the hope of the world. 
not just us as individuals, not just us as a community, but the hope of the entire world. John's gospel is one of four accounts of Jesus's life, and it's written by one of Jesus's closest friends, and really his apprentices. It's written by a man named John, and John is known as being this, he's known as being an evangelist. And an evangelist is somebody who shares regularly about the reality of Jesus. And this gospel account that John has written, it's different from the other three, from Matthew and Mark and Luke. It is so descriptive it's often very poetic. Uh, there are just these, these, um, these big phrases and themes that are meant to kind of get our heads and our eyes from the things here and kind of up to see the scope of, uh, of the cosmos and of all that God is doing in creation. And John's gospel additionally has some really punchy teaching from Jesus that's not contained in the other gospels. I think of John chapter 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, or John chapter 14 and 16, where Jesus is teaching specifically on the Holy Spirit, or this this well-known, articulate, short description of the gospel in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would have eternal life and not perish. God did not come into the, he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to set the world free, to offer freedom, to offer reconciliation, to draw us home, to draw us home to our creator. The way that John opens this account of Jesus' identity is unique to, it's incredibly bright. Now, this is completely subjective, but I imagine John's gospel, if John's gospel were a color, maybe it would be yellow or bright green. Or if we were measuring John's gospel in lumens, I, I sense that it would be like 5,000 K. It's like daylight. It's, it's bright. And it's not that the other gospels are dark. They're just different. John's gospel is just brimming with this life. And in fact, his opening words are, are meant to make us think of these things. His opening words, in the beginning was the word, sounds like something else really significant in your Bibles. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was dark and it was uncultivated and unformed. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, uh, Genesis chapter 1 tells us. And then God did something. What did God do? God spoke. He said, let there be light. And at this moment when he says, let there be light, whoosh, just things come into being. Formation starts to occur, and it's God's decree. It's God's word that is doing this. Sort of like a carpenter who says, I'm going to build a table, and then a table appears through his hands. Similarly, as God purposes things through his words, even more powerful than a carpenter, God as creator makes things happen. His divine power creates. John wants us to be thinking of this as we read the opening lines of his gospel. It's called the prologue. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, is called the prologue. 
And what John is doing in this prologue is he's setting direction for us. He's introducing us, his readers, to the man, Christ Jesus. And John is introducing us to the real Jesus, a a man, a human, also God, who he knew very, very well. He lived life on life with Jesus over the course of three years, traveling as Jesus is healing and teaching and and, and really blessing the people around him in such magnificent ways that crowds upon crowds of people were clamoring for his attention and for his gaze. John was at home with Christ Jesus. He knew him. John counted him as a friend. John described himself as the one who Jesus loved. That's how, that was John's personal phrasing for himself. And he trusted Jesus for decades. He's saying in his gospel some very remarkable things about Jesus. We've just entered into this Christmas season. Christmas and Advent Advent is a word that can be unfamiliar to us, especially in lower church or unchurched settings, but Advent is a a Latin word that means arrival or expectation. This season of Advent is a season where we are looking back at Jesus' coming into the world, God taking on flesh, living among us. We're looking back, we're reflecting, but we're also looking forward to His second Advent or His second arrival as he promises that he will come for his people to make all things new and to draw us to him into his kingdom fully and finally. So in some ways, we're in in between. We're in the, theologians call this the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. Christmas and Advent are all about the celebration of Jesus' origin story. Now, some... Many people in the world, well-meaning Christians for sure, our theology about Jesus is off pretty significantly. Many people believe that Jesus was created at his birth, that there was a time when the Son of God was not. They think that Jesus was made by God. Survey after survey after survey tells us that our theology stinks here. This isn't what the Bible teaches, though, that Jesus was created. The Bible teaches that Jesus became, the Son of God became human at his conception. He became human at his birth, that he became incarnate or in flesh. That's what incarnation means. But the conception and the birth of Jesus wasn't actually the start of Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus goes back all the way to before the origin of everything. That in the beginning, Jesus was. The Son of God was. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So what the Bible is teaching us is that Jesus, the Son of God, we know Him as Jesus in the flesh, but the Son of God is pre-existent. A very smart theologian wrote this, and I love this phrasing. He says this, the first statement of John's gospel is this bomb of meaning that goes off without warning. Like, you know this, when you start reading, this is not like other writing. 
I've got to figure out what's going on. It's mysterious here. It's speaking of something transcendent. Jesus, John's gospel is a bomb of meaning that goes off without warning. It erupts suddenly. And the sublime and inexpressible, the infinite and unsearchable, the personal and ineffable reality of God comes exploding onto the consciousness of John's audience in the words of John 1. Here, John proclaims the Word as God, through whom the world was made, in whom is life, and who is unquenchable light. This term, Word, is is strange to us, but what John is doing is he's using the Greek word logos. And this Greek word logos is used uh, often in the Old Testament. In in the the Hebrew Bible, there was a translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. And it was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And all over in this Septuagint, this word logos was consistently used whenever God was speaking, whenever he was decreeing. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. That's logos. And in, in, in Greek philosophy, this logos was kind of this impersonal creation force. A lot of people, it's super popular in our day today to say, you know, I just spoke to the universe and I asked the universe for it and the universe provided it to us. We hear this all over, right? That's kind of what the Greek idea of logos is, is this impersonal force. But in the Hebrew Bible and in Christian thought, logos is more than that. It's, it's God's word. It's his revelation of himself and it's effective, meaning His word creates. So when God speaks, things come into being. But it's not just, his word is not just impersonal. This is not just impersonal to us. Here, logos also means that by his speech, he relates personally to his people. He reveals himself. John is trying to show us that Jesus is personal. That's what he's trying to show us in John chapter 1, that God himself, this word, this eternal word, this eternal creating force is not just a force, but also a person who is personal. Now, why does all of this matter? We've got artificial intelligence these days. We've got supercomputers in our pockets, so if you're a little bit hungry, I'm hungry right now, and if I were to pull out my phone, I can have hot food on my doorstep before, from some restaurant in town before I even get here this morning. We've got all kinds, of, all kinds of technology at our fingertips, all kinds of creators out there providing for us. Stories and imaginations abound. The creators of Marvel, Harry Potter, the Trolls franchise, they have these massive imaginations where they're creating worlds and they're creating economies and they're drawing us into these stories. And so I'm asking myself the question, what made what John wrote 2,000 years ago about Jesus more true than what is being written and created by people in our day? There's a great big fundamental difference between what's being created and written in our day and what John wrote years and years and years ago. 
John the evangelist asserts that what he's writing is true. He's asserting that what he is writing is history. These other writers, these other creators are decidedly fiction writers. They're having a good time. They're entertaining us and we enjoy it. And John's having a good time too, maybe even a better time than they are because he's bringing forward this truth that helps humanity reconnect and then stay connected to our creator. Look at John 1, 3. Look at verse 3. John says this, all things. How many things is that? All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So how much did he make? All things. The point is pretty clear here. John will actually, he'll, he'll end his gospel in chapter 21, at the very end. He'll, he'll write that everything before is truth. And he says, I'm bearing witness to these things. As somebody who knew Jesus personally, I'm bearing witness to these things and my testimony in this account of Jesus and all that he has said and done is true. I'm bearing witness to these things. Now, if John has taken all of this time to write and to record the things that he's heard Jesus say and do, and if, he's, if he goes to great lengths to say that all that he has written here is true, And if John tells us the reason that he's recorded all this in the first place is so that his readers will believe that Jesus is God who has come to the world, then it puts a serious question into each of our laps. Puts a serious question before each and every one of us. The question is, do we believe this? Do we believe it? Will Will we believe him? Will we take him at his word? Because if we take John at his word about who he says Jesus is, then it has very big implications. Bigger than just what we're doing on December 25th. Bigger than what we're celebrating this season. We cannot afford to ignore what John is saying through his word. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says this about the one who has created all things. Not only has he created all things, but he is life. He's the life source. In him was life, and the life in him was actually the light of men, the source of life for men and women. The light shines in the darkness, John writes, and the darkness has not overcome it. What John is saying is that Jesus is victorious over all of the darkness in our world, all of it. And John is standing on that with his own life. He's standing on it with his life. John would suffer greatly because he would not stop saying that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is the light of the world and that Jesus is the life of mankind. And later in the Apostle John or John the Evangelist's life, he would would write these short letters to other churches to encourage and to strengthen them in dark times that they were going through on their own as they were squeezed and they were pressed and they were suffering because they too were saying a similar thing, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has lived in our place and that he has died and that he was crucified at the hands of the Romans at 
the request of the Jews, but he did not stay there, that he rose from the grave after three days and appeared and was transforming to them and eye-opening to them and the actual one who had conquered death and who had conquered sin and who had conquered Satan. They would not stop saying this in their communities and their circles of friends and their culture, and because of it, they were suffering and so John is writing letters in 1 John chapter 1. It's toward the end of your New Testament. He opens 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 with this. He says, it'll be on the screen. He says, that which was from the beginning. It sounds really familiar to the gospel that he's written. In the beginning was the word. Now he starts in 1 John chapter 1, says, that which was from the beginning. But he gets even more tactile here. He says, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes. We've looked upon, we've touched with our hands this word of life. This is poetic, descriptive language for Jesus Christ. This life, God in the flesh, was manifested or revealed to us. And we have seen it or Him. And we testify and proclaim to you this eternal life, which was with the Father, And was made manifest to us. And John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. We've lived with him. We've seen him. We've we've encountered him. We've touched him. We've hugged him. We've heard the tenor of his voice. We've seen the look in his eyes. We've seen his deeds firsthand. We proclaim him to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our Our fellowship is with the Father and with, here it is, His Son, Jesus Christ. And John tells his audience why he's writing these things. We're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. He doesn't say we're writing these things so that you'll know the truth. He doesn't write and say, you'll know, we we want you to know these things so that your life will be better. He says, I'm writing this so that your joy will be full, so that you'll experience the kind of satisfaction by being connected to God that you were made for, you were created for, so that we would be connected to God and to one another, that we'd make our home with God, that we would come to Him. To me, that sounds like an incredibly bright purpose. Every person here offered the gift of real connection, real homecoming with God. And that's what Christmas is really about. That's what this season of Advent that we're in is about. The light and the life of mankind, of men and of women. Christmas announces that God has come to humanity to connect with us, to live among us. He's made his home with us. What's so profound about this to me is that he has initiated it. He has ini- this is not a request that he is answering. He has initiated this. He's come to identify with us through his humanity, through his suffering, to be the true savior of the world that all the Marvel and all the Harry Potter and all the trolls stories mimic. God has entered our darkness in order to dispel it with the light of his life. To help us, like him, push back, continue to push back the darkness around us. Look at verse 5. We're going to be in the text. Look at verse 5 here. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Elsewhere, the scriptures say that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. John, or rather, Jesus shines his light into our dark world and the darkness of our world cannot extinguish it. The darkness of this world is powerless to extinguish the light and the life of God who is on the move in his world, restraining the darkness. Should he withdraw his hand, the whole world, chaos and murder and rage and anger and theft and all of the ugly things that you can imagine. Addiction. Take us out and take over. But God himself is intervening in his world through his son, through his spirit, and through his church to push back and to restrain the darkness. My favorite part of all of the traditions of Christmas is living in the light of our Christmas tree at home. I just, I love the glow of the tree. There's nothing else quite like a quiet morning or a quiet night when the house is still, nothing stirs, not even a mouse, you know. And, and here this light is, this tree is just, grow, just glowing, just illuminating. Christmas trees are a pretty strange tradition if you think about it. We went and cut those things down. We drove all the way to Oregon for those things. Brought them back here, plopped them down in a pot of water, wrapped some lights around them, and then eventually and in our homes, we hang hundreds of pieces of flare all over them. Personal to us, personal to our stories. There's something about the trees and there's something about the light and the glow emanating from these trees that just brightens my spirit. What about you? I heard you visibly respond when I said that initially, when I just started to talk about the glow of the trees. Don't get me wrong, I get super annoyed with the Christmas tree up to the point where it's set up and actually doing the glow work in my home. But once it's there, man, it's good. It is good. I think this is one of the reasons that this giving, giving Trees event that so many of you gave your time and energy and resources to is such a special event. There is far more going on than just giving out Christmas trees. These trees are a way into our neighbors' lives. We experienced this yesterday. These trees are a way into their stories. They're a way, these trees are going to people that we would not have ordinarily had exposure to or been able to meet, but now we have a way into their lives, a way into their stories in order to help them carry burdens. And we saw that yesterday as just people are saying story after story after story, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, and this is a bright spot in my life. And then I get to witness so many of you saying, can I pray for you? And I'm just looking at various times and there's these little huddles of families with one of you with a hand on the shoulder and people's heads are bowed and you are interceding for them in the name of Jesus, not in the name of this church, not in the name of yourself, in the name of Jesus. It is so powerful the way that we get to offer life-changing and eye-opening hope in Jesus' name. 
And we want our neighbors to associate Jesus' name with generosity. Whether we gather in this building or whether it's at Templins for a year or two or wherever we find ourselves in the churches that we plant eventually by God's grace, we want people, we want our community to associate Jesus' name and who he is with generosity, to remember in their time of need that Jesus, that God is near through his church through his word, through his spirit. These trees are a symbol of the light and the life that come from the real Jesus. And so I've just had this language in my head and heart over the last week or so. I'm hopeful that these little ornaments that say Jesus sees you and loves you and knows you, I hope these little ornaments and these trees that are glowing in homes just preach Jesus in the dark moments, wherever hope wanes, wherever hope wanders in these people's stories, I hope these trees continue to just preach Christ. We hope that people are invited into this community where they can find meaningful connection and be forever changed by Jesus. Our hope is that because of this, because of some encounters yesterday and some prayers prayed, that just one mom keeps going, that just one dad keeps going, that one family comes to believe Jesus and to trust him with their whole life and to be baptized and to follow him and to preach him to the people around them that we will never meet or never know, but life after life after life, like a ripple going out, will just continue to be changed by our small expressions of service. Right? We've, we, 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 we've got money, we've got energy, we've got time wrapped up into this, but God's economy is amazing. Why? Because we serve, but have you experienced this, that he satisfies us in the serving? He satisfies us in the serving. We don't serve God so that he'll love us. We serve him because he does. We've experienced his generosity. We've experienced his light dawning on our hearts, waking up to his reality. We've experienced his life, waking up our souls, making us sons and daughters of God. You guys, our future is so secure because of his initiating work, because of his work in us. Our king and maker has come, and at great cost to himself, he has secured victory over evil and sin and death and the devil. And now he freely offers it to anyone who will receive him by faith. Look at verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all people, that all would, might believe through him. He, this John, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, in this prologue here, the Apostle John, the Evangelist John, starts talking about another John, and it can get a little bit confusing. It's not all that hard to sort out when you just pay a little bit of attention to the text here. He's talking about John the Baptist, who was a forerunner to Jesus. The people of Israel had this deep belief, too deep to get into this morning, this deep belief that God would send a Messiah to them to free them from the yoke of the pagan nations around them, but also to guide them into flourishing, to be the end-all, be-all for their protection and for their thriving. For example, you know how deeply embedded the Second Amendment is here in the United States and especially in North Idaho? Right? This belief in a coming Messiah was far more embedded in Israel's consciousness than even our death grip on the Second Amendment. 
They've been teaching generation after generation. So about every 20 years for the course of 1,500 years that the Messiah could come at any moment. And so generation after generation is on the lookout. And now John the Baptist is announcing to the people of Israel that God's Messiah is here. That's what John is telling us in this gospel in verses 6 through 8. He came to bear witness about this light coming into the world. The light of mankind is alive. He's in the flesh. He's on the scene. Look at verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This true light, this light of God's presence in His Son opens eyes and makes invisible things visible like a tree lighting up a dark room on a quiet morning. The true light is in the world, making His home among all of those that He has created. But the world, that's shorthand here for people, the world that Jesus created didn't know Him. The world, the people didn't recognize Him. They thought maybe He was special, but certainly God isn't here in you, Jesus. Not right now. Not, this, is, this is different than we anticipated. Some people believed, sure, but the but the masses did not. Verse 11, or verse 10, rather. He, this creating force, this word, this logos, this light and life of humanity was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own or his own people, and his own people did not receive him. God has come to the ones who have been looking to him for generation after generation after generation. But their hearts were so darkened. Their hearts were so dulled. Their hearts were so in love with their own pleasures and their own selves that when God came in ways that they did not expect or like, even they rejected him. The very people that he had created and who had been looking for Messiah for so long. The Bible has a lot to say about the darkness that lurks in the heart of men and women. It has a lot to say about the darkness that lurks in my heart and in your heart and in ours. And the world is all ears for good news until that good news starts to say something that it doesn't like. Part of the good news of Jesus is that he has come to do business with our sin. And part of what it means to surrender ourselves to Jesus is to own our sin before him and say, there's nothing that I can do to atone for the guilt on my hands. And the things that have come out of my, my, my mouth and my life. We don't like to hear things that we don't like to hear. So let's bring it close to home. When a, a close friend brings an uncomfortable truth about you, to you, how do you respond? Are you quick to listen in an open-hearted way? Or are you quicker to defend vigorously? This response is in all of us. Typically to defend. See, we say we love straight shooters... That is until the straight shooters start aiming true words in our direction. 
And the Spirit of God wants to humble us. He wants to work humility into our hearts to be open to truth. John the Apostle is aiming straight words at you and I. John the Apostle is aiming straight words at you and I. And he's contrasting two sides that develop as Jesus arrives on the scene, whether it's on the scene in the first century or whether it's on the scene through his word, by his spirit, among his church here in Post Falls, Idaho in 2023. John is telling us the truth about the real Jesus. And here's the question. Will we believe him? Will we surrender to him? To his word, to the truth of his word, We're told of a contrast that develops on the opening pages right here in the prologue. One group rejects Jesus and will ultimately cry for his crucifixion. But another group will receive Jesus and they'll accept that he is God. They'll accept that he is Lord. They'll accept and embrace that he is the light of the world and the life source of mankind. And they won't just accept this and surrender to this intellectually that Jesus is these things, but they will welcome Jesus for who he really is. God in the flesh, the Lord, and they'll surrender themselves to him. They'll say, not my way, not my will, but your will be done, which will echo Jesus' own words in his ministry as he was surrendering himself to the Father on our behalf, in him who was no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus himself surrendering his own life so that we could have life and not just have some life, but have it to the full. Be satisfied by reconnection and consistent connection to life with God. Reconciliation. Every person here has this invitation. Here's where we'll close. Will you accept this invitation? Will you surrender yourself to Jesus? Some long-time believers may be saying, are you inviting people to come to know Christ right now for the very first time? Maybe I'm excluded from that, and so we just kind of compartmentalize, but I'm talking to you too. I'm talking to every single person in the room. Will you surrender yourself to Jesus? Every person who surrenders themselves to the eternal word, the Son of God, the light and life of mankind, has this secure and unshakable identity. I am a child of God. I am a daughter of God. I am a son of God. And no one, not even the devil himself, can rob you of it. God declares that all who come to Christ by faith are his forever. He seals us with his spirit for the day of redemption. So have you never come? Have you never actually crossed this line where you begin to confess your need to Jesus and you say, Lord, forgive me. I know what I've done. I know what I'm guilty of. Forgive me. I trust that you are God, I trust that you are the Lord. I trust that you have been crucified somehow, even in ways that I don't understand, to, be a, to, to atone for my sin, to cover me. And I trust that you, Jesus, aren't just the figment of our imaginations or some other teacher who's dead and in a grave, but I trust that you are alive 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the invitation is come home to Christ. Come home to your maker. There's others in the room I want to speak to for a brief moment. Are you withholding yourself from Jesus? You've known him, you've been close in the past, but there's something going on. You've been at a distance or maybe you're keeping him at a distance. There's something you don't understand, something you're angry about, something that you have hurt over, something that you are lamenting, something lodged in your soul. Are you distant and keeping him at a distance? The the invitation is the same for you. Come home. Come home. Jesus will not put you to shame. And are you living in close relationship and making space for Jesus to speak and to lead you? You're in, you're tight. Yeah, things could be better. Things can always be better. But you're in relationship with him. The invitation is just the same. Keep returning. Keep returning. Keep returning. As you wander, he will draw you near. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, would you... Help us to believe. Would you help us to embrace you in ways that we need to embrace you? Would you help us to repent of ways that we have put you off and kept you at a distance, that we have refused to surrender ourselves, our things, our hearts, our minds, our lives, our possessions? Convict us. Convict me. Teach me. Lead me. Empower me. Lord, fill us with your spirit to obey you, to follow you, to do the next right thing before you. Keep us faithful, please. In Jesus' name, amen.